Welcome to AWS She Builds Tech Skills with your hosts, Maya and May. Welcome everyone on this lovely Thursday or Friday, wherever you are in the world. My name is Maya Nishitani and we're here to host another awesome session of AWS She Builds Tech Skills. And we're at episode 26 already. And it's all about Gen AI, generative AI. May, what's been happening in that space and uh, <laughs> what have you been working on? Yeah, good. Uh, well, a lot of things has been happening in the generative AI space, as you can imagine. And um, some of the, well, I guess like big events that's happening in Sydney. So if you are in Sydney, you should come and check out South by Southwest that is happening at ICC throughout the week. And I'm going to be there until Saturday uh, this week. So come and check out some of the innovation, some of the, you know, the cool technology and um, some of the generative AI applications that we have built at the expo floor. Awesome. Can you tell me more about this um, generative AI application uh, demo that you've got going on at South by Southwest there? Yes. So, um, my background is software engineering so i love tinkering and playing around with this and i don't i don't have much of a you know in data engineering or data science background but it's really cool to build out these applications where you can ask the chatbot or we call it digital concierge so asking a digital concierge about the sessions that is happening uh, where you are so let's say i'm at the expo floor a and i want to know a session about robotics from 9 to 10 a.m. What sessions are playing at 9 to 10 a.m. at this floor? And you can ask the, uh, ask the digital concierge to come up with, you know, these are the sessions that's available. This is where they are. Uh, these are the speakers and all about uh, things that's happening at that time. So that's, a, that's like a really simple, I guess, like way to showcase the generative AI and large language model to re really extract that information from start by start with schedule and be presented to their user. So if you're interested, come and check us out at ICC today. I'm going to be there today and tomorrow. That's awesome, man. Eh? That sounds a lot like um, a lot of fun, actually. I wish I could be there. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm truly getting uh, FOMO there. I'm missing out. Um, now, speaking of, <laughs> speaking of um, you know, all these different uh you know things that you're building and stuff like that you used to be a developer right and uh lately mm -hmm. i've been getting questions around you know what are the what's the difference between let's say developer or a software engineer versus a solutions architect i know we're both solutions architects um what's the difference may it's really interesting because like yeah like this is one of the most commonly asked questions that we get or maybe like from the connections on the from the network it's like look as a solutions architect we are technology advisory we advise customers on on the latest innovations that's happening the latest technology um you know educating the customer on how to build things and building the demo and you know showcasing what they can do uh, using the technology in their business and I guess like as a software engineer in the previous life if like it's so much into you know building writing a production ready code really in the development life cycles that I'm deeply involved and when I switched to a solutions architect role 
I'm taking a step back, like I'm taking myself out of the development life cycles. And it is like, even before the development happened, um, just having that, you know, a conversation with the customer at the earlier stage of what is possible, what is, what's good looks like building on AWS and how to, how to, you know, uh, design from the best practices perspective in the technology space. So I think that's my two cents. What about yourself, Mai? Yeah, it's definitely customer facing. Whereas, um, you know, I, I, I didn't used to be a dev. I used to be a uh, sysadmin or um, I guess the modern term for it now is um, a DevOps engineer, right? Or a platform engineer. Um, so in that role, I was more sort of in the background or in the back end, um, you know, configuring things and uh, deploying things, right? And if don't, well, depends who you call your customer, right? you, that you will have internal customers. But in terms of liaising with customers uh, on a regular basis, and may you mentioned yeah. best practices, um, uh, the best practices part for essays are really important. And, you know, I always go back to the well-architected framework around, you know, what's the best way to design and architect something on the cloud? It goes back to the well-architected, right? Um, so it is a very customer-facing role. Um, and another question that I get uh, from people on LinkedIn is like, oh, so how do you become a solutions architect? And, you know, we can dive deeper when we have our guests around that as well. Um, but, um, yeah, another question is, do you need to do leak code in order to uh, become a solutions architect in, in that interview process? Uh, no, you don't need leak code, at least for... No an SA role in AWS. Um, what's been your your experience, May? Yeah, it's like, um, yeah, it's it's mainly around, I guess, like architecture design and your thought process. Like I remember uh, sitting through my interview process, it's just like, you know, trying to uh, articulate what how you solve the problem, what benefits is in there for the customers and how you make a choice on the technology. There are so many choices and so many ways to build or solve the problem. And it, it's really important to focus on your thought process and how you get to the solution stage and why do you choose that technology and be able to articulate that i guess that's the main or like in my experience that is the core components of being a, a customer facing a solutions architect um i just want to call out a few people's on the chat so let us know where you are joining from uh, i just want to call out mitch <laughs> Hey, Mitch. <laughs> Mitch is um, it's one of my earliest mentor when I joined AWS as well. So uh, thank you for checking us out on live streaming. Yeah. Hey, Mitch. And he, also... he was my mentor as well for the con containers technical there field community. There you go. Um, right. Freedom Dio. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about extracting information. And I think this is a really good time. Mai, do you want to introduce our yes. guest speaker? Yes, definitely. All right. So uh, with us, we have uh, our fellow solutions architect, but she is a specialist solutions architect in the uh, AI ML or artificial intelligence and machine learning space. Welcome, Romina. Hello. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I was going to say welcome to myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Uh, May, do you have a few questions for Romina? 
I do. And uh, Romina, are you, where are you based? Um, I'm based off Melbourne. So today is beautiful oh. and sunny. That is amazing. And I know you have been with AWS and uh, for a little while and you've been in this AIML and tech industry for a, quite a number of years. So tell us a little bit about what you do at AWS. As you can see in our title, we are slightly different solutions architect, specialist solutions architect. Tell us a little bit about your role at AWS and how do you get into this industry? Sure. Uh, thanks, uh, May and Mai. Um, so first about a role, the, the role itself, uh, being a, a specialist solution architect. So May and Mai, you touched on some of the, uh, the things that we do as solution architects, working closely with technology um, and working closely with customers. So I think they really underpin what I do as well. Um, very closely working with customers, but I'm really focused in solving customers problems within this machine learning and I add to that generative AI space these days. So and that can include really a range of different conversation at different level of depths because we deal with customers at different level of maturity. So sometimes you want yourself kind of stay at really broader um, view of how you would go about solving a certain problem, is it actually a good idea to solve that problem via machine learning or let's say generative AI? But a lot of the times we go really deep and you know in the weeds to kind of solve a very specific you know, issue or problem that is not actually working in a certain way. So you go and find in what technology can actually solve that specific, you know, area. Um, with that, uh, we also uh, work with range of different customers. A lot of them are developers, a lot of them are data scientists, a lot of them are, you know, senior stakeholders that they're decision kind of makers. So you also um, have that basically opportunity to work across different layers within, you know, your customer base. Um, and uh, to add to that, a lot of the uh, activities that we do, like yourself is building a specific POCs for the customers, helping them, you know, get started with building, you know, uh, whatever use case that they want on AWS, hosting training and enablement session for the customers, deep dive specific, you know, workshops um, on each of, you know, the AWS's AIML services, which there's cool of, you know, a full stack of, you know, services available to the customers so that keeps us quite actually busy um, as a specialist solution architects yeah no that's that sounds really cool um a lot lots of activities lots of different activities that you're doing with the um customer um the another questions i get i guess is um how did you get into a specialist uh, solutions architect role and uh what was your experience looks like Sure. Um, a great question because I get that question a lot as well on the LinkedIn. So I think it's a really good opportunity to share about a little bit my personal journey. So um, I think I developed the passion of working with data back in time when I was actually doing my PhD. So early in my PhD, I really knew um, and I developed that passion of how to work with data. And when I talk about that, that was before data science actually hit, you know, the world and everyone buzz about what is data science. And I'm talking about even big data prior to that. So um, uh, that was for me. And, and my PhD actually involved working a lot with the data. Um, 
sophisticated from a statistical analysis um, that I had to perform as part of the program. And from there, I started actually going deeper and deeper into that. But one thing I wasn't good at, that was programming. <laughs> You're good at your software developer, but I wasn't actually a software developer. So that's something I take a lot of prod in because I'm a self-taught programmer. I started teaching myself how oh, to code wow. um, and um, and I really start to actually loving it. And I could kind of relate a lot of the time how you can, when you want to solve a certain programming problem, how you actually break it down into pieces and then try to kind of build that, you know, uh, a specific algorithm just just like any other problems. And that, uh, that was, I think, a turning point in my career when I actually rolled my sleeves up and taught myself how to code because that really empowered me to take whatever I do to a different level. Um, also, that inspired me to go back to university and do another degree after PhD, which most people oh, wow. find it really <laughs> weird that, again, I've done to do another you know, degree after a PhD. So yes, I went back and did um, a master's in artificial intelligence um, in computer sciences because um, I had, again, two passions. First, learn the fundamentals really, really well. And second, I wanted to do, again, some research within the NLP kind of mm -hmm. area. So, um, and when I was doing my master's, I was already actually working in the industry as a data scientist. Um, and um, majority of my time has been spent in a consulting roles, um, customer facing, you know, and solving the customer problems. That's perhaps part of the passions that I have as part of the job that I do. And following that, um, I just um, I started my career at AWS as well as a solution architect, which is machine learning solution architect, which a lot of the time you find the people coming from, you know, data science background. Um, a lot of the yeah. people come from, you know, data science consulting background into this role um, at AWS. Yeah, that's that awesome. is very inspiring. <laughs> the dedications to study and then like <laughs> self-taught program. That's very inspiring. Um, Thank you. Mai, do you have, do you have yeah. any other questions? Yeah, so I'm sure you get a lot of questions um, um, from LinkedIn around, you know, how do you become a ML engineer or be in the AI ML space? Um, and what what's the number one advice uh, you give to people who is looking to break into that space? Um, amazing question because I already have a few actually messages on LinkedIn that I'm trying to answer, but hopefully you're online and you can actually listen uh, listen to what I actually have to share. So one thing I think will always stand you out from the rest of the people, and that's the art of communication within a especially solution architect within a solution architect role you have to be a really really good communicator and that kind of brings me back to the point that i mentioned you get to talk to different type of people from the developer all the way to really see you know c-suite or executives that you will actually deal with so being able to communicate not just the normal um you know things but the technical side it's really an art that you will have to build on. That is why one of the um, perhaps biggest recommendation that I have, if you have the passion to becoming a solution architect is first of all, uh, build on your soft skills, built on your consulting skills. You have to be 
able to listen very well, digest all those information, and then think how you can use all those information to solve a specific problem. So no, you don't need a PhD to be a solution architect, <laughs> although there might be some patterns because a lot of the MLS specialists do actually have a PhD, but I suppose that's because the nature of the role requires you to solve various type of problems. So you have to be always available and eager to learn new technology and also go deeper at different levels to solve, you know, for problems that customers bring to you. And some of those problems can be really, really challenging. You get to wear different really hats. Sometimes you have to maybe dig really you know, uh, into codes to understand what certain, you know, piece of code works, um, algorithms and, uh, you know, different models and now, nowadays even with Gen AI. So there's a lot of changes. So that's one of the advices. Technology, I think, is the second thing um, because technology changes. What we learn, you know, today, what we learned last year, a lot of the time is not fully relevant as technology evolves. And we are, I think, observing this just now with the generative AI. Everything is started to shift. Everything has started to evolve. I even feel my role has started to shift and evolve quite a lot compared to what I did basically last year. So that's another thing to always stay on par and stay up to date with what is actually happening around you within the technological space. And uh, that is, you know, the third thing. And the most importantly, knowing whether this role actually is the right role for you or not. Why am I saying this? Because dealing with customers require you to develop also some additional skills that a lot of the time you don't know what customer asks you. So you have to feel comfortable um, when you don't know things. You have to be able to respond and act and know where to go and what resources are in your disposal to solve a specific problems. Prioritization of what you do. These are all really, really important skills that you will also need in this role. So I think combination of all those, and I say that because I do have a lot of friends who work in the technology, but a lot of the time they tell me they never can do what I do. It's because it's a job that requires you to constantly be evolving yourself, constantly be learning. That's an amazing um, answer, Romina. And I totally agree with the communication is key and even like defining the problem statement, right? That comes first. And once you've got what the problem statement is, then it's just working from there, working backwards from that problem. Um, and yeah, <laughs> and, and it begins. Uh, but yeah, being a solutions architect is uh, uh, no easy feat. And I totally agree with that. Now, uh, speaking Absolutely. of um, the fast-moving space of generative AI, uh, I believe you have a cool demo that uh, you're going to run everyone through today. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks so much. First of all, um, I want to go back to what we've discussed so far. Why I'm actually showing you all this today. What type of problems do they solve for maybe the people who are online watching or for, for some of our customers? And uh, the inspiration comes from all the chats that I've been having with my customers recently in the face of um, generative AI um, and LLMs. So I want to talk a little bit about what are the use cases that actually information extraction um, are helpful and we can solve them by. By the name information extraction, Sounds a little vague, but let's look into some of the common use cases, which when you look around, 
around yourself, a lot of the time you see, oh, I do actually have a customer who wants to do this. Oh, I actually have a problem like this. So let's look at some of them. Um, one of the predominant um, um, areas that I've had chat with customers is the customer has um, piece of text that can be conversation out of a call center that could be chatbot mm -hmm. sessions um, and uh, that could be customer for example emails or communications um, a lot of the time customer want to extract certain information such as what was the intent of that chat session that the customer had what was the summary of that call center that happened did actually the problem solved? What was actually the tone of, you know, the people who communicated within that email, the agent was the, you know, was the person polite? So those are all the things that a lot of the time matters to you as a features and you want to extract. One other use case, which traditionally we are a lot more familiar with, it's entity um, recognition, named entity recognition. When you have a number of PDF files, documents, or even a scanned files that they can be turned into, you know, um, um, a digital format, and you want to extract a specific named entity um, items out of them, such as name of the companies. Think about invoices that you want to, for example, extract invoice numbers and identity cards that you want to extract name of the peoples and so on and so forth. And, and a lot of the time that's really important because you need to just redact or mask those information for downstream applications that you do. Other use case that in face of LLMs, you can harness really this power of extraction of information out of the uh, passages or out of the corpus of data is when you actually want to label your data. These foundation models, um, we don't need to provide them with the label data and that's really where the power comes from. But you can actually use them and label some of the data that you want to use for additional machine learning tasks or even improving the same task that you want to perform you know, it, even within the extraction. When you, and, and when I want to talk about use cases, perhaps there's so many, but one of the other uh, ones that perhaps is good to mention is about when you extract entities and relationship out of those, a lot of the time also the goal is because you want to build a knowledge graph or you want to build a taxonomy of a form. So again, these large language models can actually empower you by extracting all those information, providing you that kind of um, a stepping stone to build, you know, your knowledge graph or um, the taxonomy that you need. Okay, so let me actually go ahead and share my screen and show you in action what does that look like. Okay, present. We have um, some audience saying some are really enjoying using the LLM information extraction to organize and learn about new code system that are open source and using that as a scraping system. So I think that's an interesting use case as well. And use case absolutely that's why i say when you think about use cases there's actually a lot that you can think of but mm -hmm. you are really empowered of doing that um and and i think we can talk about those a little bit more and i think um uh, those who are online they can actually share you know what they're doing with the extraction top yeah. of work. if anyone okay. watching online want to share about the use cases that you're using on the llm with the information extraction let us know in the chat 
Wonderful. Um, so here I'm actually showing Amazon Bedrock uh, console. So Amazon Bedrock is um, one of the services uh, was announced GA just recently. Amazon Bedrock hosts a number of foundation models um, uh, from Amazon. We call them first party and proprietary third party models, such as from the Anthropic, um, that you could use these uh, models to basically build generative AI applications easily without requiring you to worry about infrastructure kind of under the hood. So this is the Bedrock kind of console and you can actually, um, and, and please feel free uh, to explore it on your own time. Um, it is available in US East 1 and US East 2 region. Um, and if you go to the Bedrock, you can see there are a number of examples that are already provided for you um, doing different type of tasks from also different providers, from entity extractions, content generations, creation of image and so on and so forth. Um, and if you go to um, base models, again, you can actually see um, different uh, providers and their models kind of listed for you that if you select kind of this model, you can open them in the playground or you can also see the API kind of inference that is available for you. Um, but before taking so much time, I actually want to go to the playground and talk about um, showing you one of these models, which is cloud version two from Anthropic. So what actually I want to ask this model is let as cloud itself, um, just bring this here. How can you help extract information from a text? Let's see what actually um, cloud comes back and tell us. So if we look at the responses providing, it actually tells us a lot about how you can actually use the information extracted. And this, this is amazing. Keyword extractions, entity relation extraction, sentiment analysis, topic modeling. Topic modeling, we had to put a lot of effort to actually do topic modeling in the past. Information retrieval, summarization. So even, you know, the model itself can tell you, you know, very nicely where it can help you with the extraction of information. Now, I want to actually go a little bit deeper because, um, you know, what I have here, I'm interacting more with the APIs compared to just, you know, the playground. Um, in this notebook, I've basically set up the associated library, set up my uh, bedrock to make sure it's kind of working. It's quite simple. You just uh, you just call the um, client for the bedrock runtime um, and pass on the parameter a specific to that uh, also model ID that you want to select um, and then invoke the model. So I've just asked a simple question, explained the uh, black hole to eighth grades um, for me, and it's given me a nice answer. Just a you know dummy question to make sure my bedrock is actually working well. Here I'm getting the bedrock to work with LangChain. Um, if you are not familiar with LangChain, LangChain is an open source framework that uh, makes creation of um, uh, of um, um, uh, applications with a large language model a lot more simple at a very high level and in a very simplistic way, as the name implies, is really chaining different, um, you know, uh, parts or models basically together in a sequential kind of way. That's really really the base um, of what LangChain can actually help you to do, such as when you put the prompt and the model kind of together. And now, Let's start with few things that we can actually use the power of this model. So I'm using the cloud version two here. 
Uh, and one other aspect that we need to consider working with these models is prompt engineering. So at the very base level, I'm just going to get, um, you know, what I need from this model using the prompt engineering. So I'm just passing an email sample. Hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. And this email actually got a bunch of uh, PIIs, including email. And I'm actually going to ask this model, hey, I'm passing you a sample of the email. Get me the email address hey, if you find one. Yep. Hello. So, um, would you be okay to zoom in a little? Okay, so oh, yes. A yes. few people on the uh, streaming saying it's, it's a little a hard small. to read. Yeah. Is it better if you now? Can zoom in. Yeah, perfect. Is better oh, that's better. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. hopefully it's better. So this is, um, try to actually move this a little bit. Just zoomed in now. Um, and uh, and once I run this with the model, you can see very nicely it's gone back. And I'm telling to model, I don't want you to tell me anything else. Just give me the email neat and clean. And that's exactly what the model does. So the more precisely communicate to these models, obviously, the better they understand what they actually can provide you. So one other example, again, that how you can get advantage of the prompt engineering i'm saying i'm passing you a text redact all the pii's that you see in this information replace them with this xxx return back the whole passage to me these are all as part of the prompts in here and um, i'm telling it i'm giving you the email in this HD, uh, HTML tags. And when you give me the response, give me in this response tags. A lot of the time when you, wanna, uh, when you want to process this done as streams, it becomes really handy in the format that you want the model to provide that basically response for you. Passing that email, and you can see very nicely, it's doing an amazing job. So it's removing all the PIIs, replacing them exactly with the format that I've requested. Like a credit card number is smart enough to redact, you know, and leave that for last four digits, which we know is not really confidential, and return it in exactly the format that I've asked. So let's look at another example. In here, I'm asking the model, hey, I'm giving you this passage, extract all the name entities, but when you return that, give me as a key and value pair within a JSON format. So the key is the entity type and the value represent those entities that you found. Look at the answer. It's just amazing. Mm -hmm. It's really doing exactly so what I'm asking can... this model to do for me. So you tell the model exactly what you want. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, it's and doing the, a really good job of spitting out those responses. Really good back. job. Exactly. Yeah. And the more precise you tell the model what to do, it it mm. is going to do it. For example, if you go ahead and remove this, it's just going to give you the entities without telling you what type mm. they are. And But I've requested it because I wanted it in exact different format. So this is... so. To emphasize and prompt engineering, I think it's part, you know, art, part science, but a lot of the time is really trial and error because different models will work also with different prompt engineering differently. 
Right. The other, um, um, I think, powerful tool that is available for you is really LangChain because LangChain also allows you to do lots of things with these LLMs. In here, I'm showing you the advantages of the output parsers that are available in LangChain and the Pydantic um, Python um, Python library, which works um, with the LangChain at the moment. So um, Pydantic is a um, uh, Python validation library, so you can actually define the classes of those objects that you want to perhaps um, validate and tell what type of um, what type of um, data they are, whether they're a string or integer and so on and so forth, and then use it together with the uh, output parser, that's the Pydantic output parser from the lang chain, passing your passage to that. I've passed a passage from um, Apple, uh, funded 1976, blah, 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 blah. And I've asked it to extract this one for me in this specific format. Look at the output. Founder Steve Jobs, year funded mm -hmm. 1976. So this actually limit the model not to put everything that it finds, only the things that you need, because that can be also challenging, a lot of noise. You extract lots of the things that you don't need, but we're here getting the model to give us exactly what we want it to do, again, in a format that we want. So you can see that all the um, products, personal computers, phone, and Bluetooth. So um, any questions coming through or? Um, I've got a question, I guess. Um... You've worked in the traditional machine learning space, and then uh, you mentioned that um, you know things are changing in the you know current generative AI space. Like in using uh, large language models, if you had to do this, if you think back to when you had to do it, do this before large language models, has been has there been a lot of time that's been saved since uh, LLMs have come out? Absolutely, my and what a great question because that's exactly what I wanted to actually point out next in prior to the uh, foundation model, large language models, the models that are able to multitask, and that's really the differentiator. We had to sit and label this data for all these entities that I'm showing you. It's a very labor intensive jobs, and I know it because I've done it myself back in 2017, detecting, basically annotating your data, extracting all those entities, tagging them in your kind of corpus of data, and you need lots of examples to be able particularly to, de to detect the entities that are not very common. They're not name entities, such as, for example, uh, products, you know, platforms that was, you know, projects that I've worked in the past and we have spent actually hours a team to actually annotate the data. Here, I don't even need, you know, a single, basically, a, a label data to get this model to give me. And look at the accuracy. Even the humans back in time, when you actually labeled it, sometimes it becomes very hard to detect the entities because of the semantics of the sentences and the text that we actually see. But here, that is really... And, this model is actually good to do many tasks, is not just able to do the entity detection tasks. The model that we built in the past with the label data was only able to do entity detection. It wouldn't be able to do absolutely nothing else. But here, these models are well capable of doing other type of tasks, which is exactly what I want to show you um, quick 
directly in the next kind of uh, notebook. Um, and that's also about uh, kind of not directly extraction, it's more of a classification, but that's again, because a lot of the time customers want to also do classifications alongside um, with, the, um, with the extraction. Okay, so um, here I'm actually in the SageMaker. I just to point uh, quickly towards also SageMaker Jumpstart that actually also hosts a large number of foundation models as well as LLMs. Um, so I have deployed um, a, a model here um, uh, and I'll show you quickly from the menu, you can easily go to the SageMaker Jumpstart in here, and you can actually see all the models that is available, all the foundation models. You can actually search them by ML task or solutions um, and so on and so forth. So you can really look for, there's more than I think 400 models actually available here. Um, there are several ways you can deploy these models. From the jump start, you can deploy them really by one click. A lot of the models that are fine-tunable, you can fine-tune them with one click and then deploy them with another click. You can also use, uh, because of the partnership with the Hugging Face, you can also use Hugging Face containers. So that's what I've used here to deploy this Flanty X5 model. And um, what actually I'm trying to get this model to do is, um, of I'm passing a piece of customer conversation and I'm asking what is the topic of the conversation. So similar to the discussion we had before, if we want to do topic modeling, this is what you actually can do. Again, the template, the prompt template, it's quite simple in a, let me zoom in again, again, um, in a sense that we pass the piece of text and then get the model to give us, you know, um, the topic of the conversation. So based on thing, uh, based on this passage, um, the cost that the topic is booking a flight. So it's doing a very good job again. But now I want to talk about a little bit that a lot of the times classification comes with the specific classes that you want to actually use. And um, this is where I've created actually a dummy data. So you can see in that data, there is an intent class and there's a sub intent class. A lot of the time, even the labels that you want to extract out of the conversation might be hierarchical, might be nested. So in here, what I'm going to do is of define this uh, kind of intent template, um, telling it only when you tell me what it is, pick one of these labels. So you can see I'm passing these labels in here to the model and also the prompt that the text, the customer text itself. And I asked the model to return that to me. I've also done it in a kind of nested fashion. So first I'm getting, I'm telling the model which of this intent it is and then pass that intent and then what is the sub intent? For example, for all the booking, you have a number of them. For the luggage, you have a number of them. So the model is back to me with that prompt engineering, with the labels specifically that I'm giving to the model to pick from. Intent is booking. The sub intent is make a booking. So you can see that how powerful actually the prompt and giving the context to the model, zero shot, you know, classification can actually be to solve, you know, a lot of the use cases that you actually want to want to do without really requiring you to label your data. Yeah, I think so that's, 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 that's super powerful. 
Yeah, we do have a questions on the uh, on the live as well. So I'm just going to say, like, if you have any other questions, please drop it in the chat. One question that comes up is, uh, Romina, what do you think of AI agents? Um, like, would you consider mm -hmm. those agents? And if there any, I guess, like the benefits of using those agents in those systems? Sure. Absolutely. So Langchain actually provides a number of agents that you could utilize. So um, agents are different with chains. Agents, you can think of them as one level uh, more intelligent. This is my sort of uh, perhaps explaining it to myself in a sense that the agent can decide at the time what action to take. But a chain, you just run, run the chain. Whatever chain yeah. it is, you just run that chain. So a lot of the time using agents can be a very powerful um, 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 I'd say framework um, uh, and uh, for example an agent you can build a custom agent and you um, get it to work with different tools and those different tools um, can do different things one can be for example um, I don't know a booking system one can be um, falling in your knowledge base to find the answer like a rag based system but the agent actually at that time decides using an llm which of these tools it should basically utilize so that's where the agents actually can be really powerful and yes uh, we will see more and more applications on, on them and bedrock mm -hmm. will, will release its own um, agents as well which makes building these applications a lot more simpler yeah, that's that's really interesting because um, the freedom freedom there mentioned that you know with the AI agents a model discussing the result of a query with another model to make it more complex and more uh, like handling those kind of intelligent exactly. like decision making process. So I think that's a really interesting um, technology to you know to incorporate into a LLM and this generative AI application. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And and again, when you think about the use cases, it can be really limitless um, on what you can actually do. And more importantly, more and more are being built in this area nowadays, like Langchain, every day you use it, there's a new version virtually like tomorrow. So yeah. Um, it is it's constantly evolving. Uh, Mai, do you have any other questions from your own? Yeah, I do actually. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, you explore the, uh, the different large language models that are available on Bedrock. Um, how do you know which model to use? Like, how, you know, what's the selection process to yeah. select that particular large language model? Yeah, one million dollar question, Mai. It's a really good question at the same time difficult the reason is look how many models are available out there like hundreds and hundreds of them are being available out there but uh given the use case i think few things can guide you through that decision making first of all is really um, the cost and performance analysis that at the you know very first level it might rule out some of the models because when you put you calculate the volume of the work uh, that you want to, you know, use those models for um, might not really justify the cost of them. Or on the other hand, it may, it might become really, really expensive depending on what hosting option you actually choose to go with. So once you have like a short list of uh, models, then you will start evaluating them. Evaluating them also, um, there will be actually quite a bit of work to be done because you need to have a specific prompts for a specific tasks. They're known as um, evaluation prompt catalogs. So, and then 
perhaps you want to have a way to evaluate the responses that these models are providing. So one way is human in the loop. Human in the loop purely can be very expensive, but you can use a stronger foundation model to actually go and score the output of the other models. Give them a rating. For example, if I'm using Flanty 5 here, I can get Cloud, which is a lot more powerful in my view, to rate the response that mm -hmm. Flantify, for example, is providing for me. From there, I can further augment that with the human in the loop to come up with some ratings of each of these models that I've actually tried. So again, there's quite a bit of details in there without getting it into the weeds, but this is perhaps uh, one way to think about how you're going to actually evaluate those models. For example, you have three and then run them through this evaluation process using the foundation models and human in the loop with the proper um, data, like ground truth data and the evaluation uh, templates um, catalog to guide you actually through that decision. Yes, that's, that's, that's <laughs> I yeah, guess like um, customer, customer conversation. So um, yeah, maybe you've probably got more questions for Romina. I have one more question because now we have talked about um, you know, bedrock, uh, blood language model, land chain, a little bit about land chain. For the audience who is watching online or watching on demand, if they want to get started, what are the possible way for them to get started? And I guess you have shown a few ways, Romina, but um, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, how the people can get started on this generative AI or large language model um, journey? Yes, absolutely. So um, we have a, a few links uh, that we can share with you um, um, and following this um, uh, uh, show. And also, um, I think if you are already AWS, you know, uh, customer, please reach out to your account team. We're always more than happy to engage and help. Um, and one other thing is there's never been, you know, an easier time um, that you can learn things and you can do things. So majority of the information is available in an open source kind of you know fashion there's githubs there's examples so they are all can be you know um your kind of guiding um one important things that i want to emphasize though is be really clear what problem you're solving and what value you're delivering because that is the most important things a lot of the time uh, you might actually think to yourself that there is a problem that you want to solve, but you need to work around how do you exactly think generative AI is going to help you solving that. So, and I do have lots of, you know, um, discussions around this with the customers because it is really important to make sure that you're delivering the value um, out of uh, what you're trying to build. Awesome. I think there's another question here from the audience. May, do you want to read this one out? Yeah, so thanks for the question. This is, I guess this is talking about uh, the earlier conversation for the reinforcement learning uh, for the model choice. So are there any particular metrics that you can share to, um, you know, to see what models yeah. performing better? 
Yeah, look, some of the uh, traditional models, it's a lot easier because you can define some metrics. Uh, for example, for a classification model, if you use the large language model, it's a lot easier to measure. So you can use some of these, you know, like, for example, uh, recall or precision or F1 score. So if the metrics can be used, some of those, you know, traditional metrics that we have, they can be actually used and make it, yes, a lot more simpler in those scenarios. But if the task is more kind of generative, it becomes a lot more harder. So having evaluation data, which has the input and the output, that will be a very good starting point because you can then um, compare what your model is producing and you can really start in a smaller scale. Start with, you know, a couple of models. Do not really go and get, you know, hundreds of models because it can be overwhelming, but you can start with that. But evaluation data is really really important because you know what did you pass to the model what, what is your actually training data actually would look like what are you giving to the model what is the ex expected output and then rate those expected outputs out of what your your uh, you know the model that you're using actually provides for you awesome great answer thank you hope that answered the questions i guess um we have to wrap it up here am i Oh, one more question from oh, earlier. One more question. <laughs> How, uh, from Silence All One. How do you learn to communicate your stuff better? Um, it's better when I'm remote, but I always feel like I could have explained things better. Um, I always go through this conundrum myself. What are your thoughts? <laughs> um, <laughs> It's actually a very good point. I always think, reflect back on how could I have said something clearer and better. Um, the mode of, you know, communication, whether it's, you know, remote or virtual or whether it's person, I personally find the person touch always more influential to be actually in the room. Um, and because to be honest, it's a lot less distraction when you are in the room with the customers, for example, everybody is focused you know, in that, you know, things, there's no, for example, a Slack, you know, messaging you and so on and so forth. So, um, but again, depends on perhaps your uh, style of working and communication. So, but what I think is valuable is whatever you feel, it helps you to improve, just do that. Personally, I think practice. Practice is the, you know, um, what makes things perfect and, same goes to the communication um, and if you have something to deliver always practice it with yourself and talk to yourself like loudly in your head I mean when I talk things in my head is always it's not as great as when I actually you know I speak it out because then you find all the things that mm, it didn't follow well or I could have said that in a more clear way yeah great advice um i think we got to wrap it up here but thank you so much romina for joining the sessions and talking about large language model thanks my to joining or hosting the show together so and thank you for the audience to joining live and if you're watching on demand if you're watching live thank you so much and i hope you enjoyed the um today's sessions and uh if you are in sydney don't forget to come and check out south by southwest and um at the aws floor and we're showcasing LLM and generative AI and all the innovations that is happening so come and check out at ICC if you're around and uh, and we will see you next time thank you thanks all thanks Mayanmai for having me cheers